the world is broken. And people are hurting. They're carrying years of past regrets, failures, and pain. They're lost in a fog of lies, disillusioned by what the world says is happiness. They've fallen into the trap of sin, desperate to become the good person they want to be, but powerless to change. Burdened, angry, and helpless. But when we, the church, the hands of Jesus, reach out to the heavy-hearted, when we, the feet of Jesus, run to the fallen, when we remove our insecurities and let the light of Christ shine bright in the darkness. God moves. us a spirit of fear, but of power and love. And when we truly believe this, freedom is found, minds are renewed, and hearts are healed. God moves when we step out in faith, when we let go of our time talents and our treasure. God moves when we, the church, go all in. When we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and become part of this thing he calls the church, community. Sometimes we bring with us a lot of baggage, confusion, some doubts, and some fears. And it's only Jesus who can meet us right where we are. And he uses the church, the community, as his hands and his feet. 
We're going to experience many different things together. As a community, we'll celebrate great milestones in the lives of people. There will be times when we mourn inevitable losses and we walk with people through great challenges. There are going to be some tremendous joys. Life is not one long day of laughter. Neither is it one long dark night of pain. So when we make this journey together, we laugh and cry together. We encourage each other along the way, and we hold each other up because we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And in order to be the hands and feet of Christ, we can't focus on each other. We can't focus on things around us. But to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, He has to be the focus. He has to be the center point. He has to be, not in just word only, but in action, the Lord of our lives. In order for us to keep our focus, Jesus commanded the church to perform two community ceremonies. These observances we do together. We do not do them alone. Jesus always tells us to do them together. Since Jesus ordained these two ceremonies, we often call them ordinances. There are two. Baptism and communion. Next time together, we're going to have the ordinance of baptism. We're going to celebrate that. We have about 26 people throughout our campuses who will follow the Lord in this command of water baptism, of believer's baptism. They will go into the water and identify with the death of Christ. They'll go under the water and identify with the burial of Christ. They'll come out of the water and identify with the glorious resurrection of Christ. These are believers. They will not be more believers when they get out of the water, but they will have made a public profession that I am all in for Jesus Christ, an ordinance that Jesus left us. I encourage you to be at those services. We do them three times a year. Next week is one, and they're some of the most impactful and encouraging services we have. Today, we're going to celebrate the other ordinance, communion. And this is a time when together we remember the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. Sometimes we call communion the Lord's Supper because it was at the Last Supper when Jesus was with, was with his disciples that he instituted the bread and the cup to be the remembrance of what he did. The bread is a symbol for his body, his sacrifice. The cup is a symbol for his blood. Anytime in Scripture we read the pouring out of blood or the shedding of blood is a, it's a figure of speech for death. And so in communion, the sacrifice, the bread, and the cup, his death. Jesus certainly did pay it all for us. Communion is a special time of community. We take the bread and the cup together. We do it individually. It's our relationship with the Lord. But again, we're in this thing called community. And so we wait on each other. And we take the bread and the cup together. Our focus is not on those around us. But it's on one person. Jesus Christ. 
And communion allows us to slow down and, and absorb and reflect and remember everything that Jesus has done for us, who he is, what he came to do, what he is doing in our life, what he will do in our life. And it allows us, as we hold the bread and the cup, to examine our hearts and, and see if we are where we need to be in our walk with Christ. So take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Today we're going to prepare to take communion together by looking at several verses in Philippians chapter 2. The first four verses contain a, a tremendous passage on community. We're going to look at that passage not next week, that's baptism, but the next time we're together after that. It's a rich passage of uh, community. But in verses 5 through 11, Paul sets forth some passages about Jesus Christ, some Christology, theology about Jesus. And this is probably the richest passage in the New Testament. It just summarizes and encapsulizes who Jesus is and what he has done. So as we prepare for communion, I want us to work our way through these verses of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Think about that. Your attitude, Paul says, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul well knew the proverb, Proverbs 23, verse 7, for as a man thinks within himself, what? So he is. Our actions flow. Our attitude flows from what we think. And so Paul says, here are some things I want you to think about. Here are some things I want you to reflect on. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Your understanding, your mindset, your thinking should be just like Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that's a pretty high calling, isn't it? And yet there it is in bold with no back down. Your attitude should be the same as Christ. But Paul doesn't leave us hanging there with that general commandment. As he always does, he breaks it down. What should our attitude look like? If our attitude's to be like Christ, what was Christ's attitude like? And so Paul begins that in chapter 2, verse 6. Who, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The first thing that Paul tells us in this passage about Jesus is that Jesus is God. He is fully God. He is in very nature God. In order for us to understand the work of Christ on the cross, we have to nail down that foundational truth that's repeated and confirmed throughout Scripture. Jesus is God. John chapter 1, I encourage you to jot down these passages and meditate on them. John chapter 1, verse 4, in the beginning was the Word, the Word referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. He's a life giver. 
And that life is a light of all men. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and what? For him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer says this, Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. And check this out, the exact representation of His being. Jesus says it like this in John chapter 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know what the Father looks like? You just look at me. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Although Jesus was God himself, he did not hold on to divine privileges and powers. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. While he was on this earth, he was willing to put aside his privileges and certain powers. He was willing to use his deity, his divine nature, not for himself, but for us. One commentator says it like this, as God, Jesus had all the rights of deity, and yet during his incarnate state, he surrendered his right to manifest himself visibly as the God of all splendor and glory. See, whether you are in Wilkinsburg or whether you're in Robinson or whether you're in Washington or whether you are here in the South Hills, you have been given certain gifts and you've been given certain advantages, experiences. And Paul says your attitude should be just like Jesus. You don't use your advantages for personal gain. Are you willing to use the advantages God has given you for others rather than yourself. Some of you are saying, you know what? I don't feel very advantaged today. I'm going through a tough time. I'm in the middle of grief. I've lost a loved one. I'm in the middle of some parenting issues that are killing me. I'm going through some emotional stuff and discouraged, and I even feel depression coming on. Don't tell me I'm advantaged. I don't know what you're going through. For many of you, I have not experienced what you've gone through. But I can tell you this. God doesn't waste your time. And whatever he's taking you through today, he's going to use it for tomorrow. He's got great things for you. And I know it's tough. But he's preparing you and he's stretching you and he's causing you to depend on him and he's given you comfort so that you can use that tomorrow. Or if not tomorrow, the next day. Or if not the next day, the day after that. There's light. And he's going to use you. Now, I don't say that just on my own. There's a passage of Scripture that explains that very clearly. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion 
and the God of all what? Comfort. Who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received, we ourselves have received from God. You see, there's going to be a day when you can look someone right in the eye going through the exact same thing you're going through now, and you can say, you're going to tell them you're going to make it through this. I did, and God comforted me, and he was with me all the way. I talked to a guy this past week who lost his son. His son, when he was 24, uh, found out he had cancer. He was died by the time he was 26 and he said it was a tough time and it still is and the wounds were fresh but here's what he said God we never doubted God's faithfulness he was there with us every step of the way Jesus did not use his own advantages for himself He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Look at the first part of verse 7. But made himself nothing. Those three words in English is one word, or is one word in Greek, the Greek word kenosis. It means to to empty. When, When Jesus became man, he did not change his nature. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot change. His attribute of immutability says he cannot change. He is in very nature God. So in some way, he didn't become not God during his time here. But rather, when he emptied himself, that means that he gave up the independent use of his attributes. He still had every attribute to the fullest, but he decided to give them up to lay them aside while he was on earth. There's a great hymn of the faith. One of the, one of the Wesleys wrote, How can it be that I should gain an entrance in the Savior's love? Died he for me who, who caused his pain. Great song. But there's a line in there that says, He emptied himself of all but love. Bad theology. He did not empty himself of all but love. He kept everything. He just chose to lay it down for a time, not to use it. Let's think of some of the things that, that Jesus set aside. Number one, he set aside his heavenly glory. He's God. He's a creator. All things are made by him and for him. And yet he chose, when he came to this earth as a little baby, dependent on a young Jewish girl to raise him and nurture him, he chose to lay aside his heavenly glory. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says this, I have brought you glory, he's talking to the Father. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I'm gonna, I want my glory back. Glorify me like I was glorified before, but I've laid that down now. I want it back again. Jesus set aside his independence. Part of being God is you are independent. You depend on no person or no thing or no one. But Jesus laid that aside. Chapter 6 of John. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I am laying down my independence. Jesus set aside his eternal riches. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich... It's an understatement, isn't it? He's God. Yet for your sake, he became what? 
He became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. That's not talking about dollars. That's talking about grace. That's talking about all the spiritual blessings of Christ being significant in him and secure in him and accepted in him and forgiven in him and empowered in him. That's the richness that Paul's talking about. And Jesus for time set aside the favor of the Father in some mysterious way. This, this one God in three persons for a time, Jesus on the cross bore our sins in his body. 1 Peter 2.24 bore our sins in his body on the cross. There was a time when all of your sins and my sins were placed upon Jesus. And the wrath of God came upon him. There was the Son bearing the sin of the world. And for a time, God, who cannot look at sin, he is holy. For a time, God turned his back on his Son. We cannot fathom the physical pain Jesus went to. But, but, the, but the wrath of God on sin is unfathomable. He took on hell itself for us. And that's what led Jesus to cry in Matthew 29, My God, my God, why have even you forsaken me? Some commentators explain that Jesus was saying, I don't know how much longer I can take this. See, Jesus voluntarily laid aside. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He laid aside those things for you and me. And our attitude should be the same as Jesus. Are we willing to lay down our independence? We like our independence, don't we? We like to be the one calling the shots. But when you follow Christ, you don't lead Christ. You follow him. And where he's calling you to go and what he's calling you to do, you have to lay down your independence for that. Our attitude should be the same as Jesus. Look at verse 7. Made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. We don't understand what it would have been like for, for God to become man. C.S. Lewis, in his writings, said the analogy would be for God to become man in order to speak to man would be like a human to become a dog in order to communicate to dogs. The, the splendor of heaven, Jesus Gave that up to become a man. And he didn't come to be the king. He came to be a servant. Mark chapter 10, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And although he was God in the flesh, although he had all the power of God in his person, he laid it aside, First Peter, when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And our attitude should be the same as Jesus. We're not here to be served. We're here to serve and give our life for Christ. Jesus calls us to life service, not lip service. And he set the bar high 
for this thing he calls sacrifice. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And then Paul has to add, even death on a cross. I love Christmas, and it's right around the corner. But I have to be quite very honest with you. I think the way many of us, including myself, I think the way many of us celebrate Christmas, it is extremely dangerous. I'm not talking about the commercialism or the materialism. That's a whole other topic. I'm talking about the way we focus on that little baby in a cradle. Everybody loves a baby. And we focus on that little baby in the cradle. And that's our Jesus. And we glamorize his birth and we ignore his death. And honestly, it's much easier to look at the cradle than it is the cross, isn't it? But communion, you got to turn your head to the cross. Take a gaze at Jesus on the cross. Throughout the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a death so shameful and disgraceful that a Roman citizen could not, it was against the law for a Roman citizen to be crucified regardless of their crime. It was a death designed for a long and painful and horrific end. And it was a death a spectacle for all to see so that any criminal might think twice about committing a crime. Take a look at Jesus on the cross. He hangs there in abject humility. He is stripped of his clothes and he's stripped of his dignity. Um, In mockery, a, a crown woven of thorns about an inch long are jammed into his skull. His face has been beaten beyond recognition. His hair and beard are matted with blood. The skin on his back and the back of his legs, it has been shredded by a professional flogger using a whip of leather straps with metal balls and bone, sharp bone pieces tied to the end. And the flogger knew just how to bury those balls of metal and those sharp bones deep into the flesh and muscle and rip them out and shred the back wide open. Many did not survive the flogging. Jesus was so physically weakened by the ordeal that he needed someone to help him carry the cross. Nails were pounded into his wrists and his ankles, causing a fiery, burning sensation. And when the crossbar was lifted onto the cross and jolted down, his shoulders were separated. His legs were nailed there in such a way, his ankles nailed in such a way, that he had to push himself up for every breath, which meant that the wounds on the back would rub against that rough cross and reopen them and cause tremendous pain. Not quite the cozy and warm cradle in Bethlehem, is it? 
Sometimes people would last on a cross for three or four days, continuing to push themselves up. That's why they went to Jesus. He was already dead. But the others, their legs were broken, so they couldn't keep pushing themselves up. They died finally of suffocation. And there on that cross, God sent his son when the most brutal form of execution existed. God sent his son to die for your sins and mine. And some people will say, well, why, why is it only Jesus? Why is he the one who can pay the penalty of our sin? Aren't these other religions? I mean, if you're sincere, right? Then God's going to accept you into heaven. And, and, and why Jesus? Why is he the only way? I mean, that's just kind of narrow. And can I say, in our day, that's bigoted. Here's the reason it's only Jesus. Because only Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is unique. No one like him. For being fully man, he's the only one who can die as our substitute. Being fully God, he's the only one who is perfect and doesn't have to die for his own sins. He voluntarily, the perfect man, fully God, voluntarily went to the cross, not as a victim, but as a willing sacrifice. And he did that for you and he did it for me. And he says, I don't want you to forget that. I want you to remember that when you take the bread and the cup. Thankfully, when we think of the work of Christ, that's not where it stops. We do not keep Jesus hanging on the cross. Look at verse 9. Because of all that Jesus has done, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, one day, people will not mistake Jesus for some lowly carpenter from the backwoods of Galilee. One day, people will not mistake Jesus as a teacher who walked around Israel. One day, people will not mistake Jesus as a miracle worker. One day, people will not mistake Jesus as someone who somehow got crossways with the religious leadership of the day, and he ended up on a cross as a victim. One day, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord, and there will be no hiding, and it will be completely understood that this is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray you know that today, and don't wait until it's too late. So when we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus did for us, ordained by Jesus himself. He said, I want you to take that bread. I want you to remember the sacrifice. I want you to take the cup, not as some ritual thing we do once a month here at the Bible Chapel, but I want you to remember the death I died just for you. I want you to remember that your sins 
or on my back on the cross. I want you to remember that I took on God's wrath just for you. And I want you to remember that I'm not hanging on the cross. It is empty. I rose from the dead, and I'm going to come back and get you. And I'm going to take you to be with me forever. That's what I want you to remember when you take the bread and the cup. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to take the bread and the cup. This is a family meal. If you are not a believer, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ alone, I warn you not to take the bread and the cup. This is not for you. I don't want to offend you by that. We're happy you're here. Instead, I want to invite you. I want to invite you today to trust in Jesus Christ alone as the only way you can have a relationship with the living God as the only way to fill that hole in your empty heart. Today you can trust in Christ.